Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're so glad you're joining us. Um, I'm excited to introduce you, if you don't know him already, Doug Paget. Doug is a uh, activist. He's a podcaster. He is an author. How many books have you uh, published this thus far, Doug? I was uh -huh. looking like over a dozen for sure. Yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's something like that. Maybe 11. Something. OK. Yeah. Right around a dozen author. Um, I, I read your most your most recent book, I think, was Outdoing Jesus. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the, the last I, one I wrote and maybe the last one. All right. Okay. All right. Uh, and then also most of his life or big chunk of his life was a pastor, yeah. even church planter, which, which, uh, crosses our worlds. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was a church planner and a trainer of church planners, right? A church planter yeah. boot camp in the whole, the whole thing. Yes. Fully, yeah. fully in that, with that world. So I, I love to start off with just people's stories. And then I want to obviously get into like maybe your most recent book and vote common good stuff, but yeah. we could back up and start kind of with Doug Padgett's origin story, kind of get you introduced to our audience. Like where were you born? You know, how did you grow up? Particularly like your, the spirituality of your home, which, you know, I've read, I've, I've talked to you a bunch about that, but for our audience, you sure. know, let them yeah. know kind of, your background. Yeah, I, I grew up in uh, a first wing suburb of Minneapolis called Golden Valley and uh, grew up in an apartment complex. And for some pl some places in the world, like being raised in an apartment is kind of normal. San Francisco, parts of Chicago, New York. That's what people do. Other parts of the country, when you grow up in an apartment complex and you live there your whole life, um, people think of it like apartments tend to be transitional places for people, not, not long time places, but I grew up in an apartment complex. My parents were managers of the, of the apartments. Um, little piece of that story that might come out uh, as, as we chat here about why that was that I learned later in life about why we lived in an apartment complex and never, never owned a house. But um, so I grew up in this apartment complex in Golden Valley. Uh, I have one sister uh, parents were together until, you know, my, my dad died and then my mom died. Uh, when I was an adult. So uh, that's my family life. Um, we didn't have a lot of extended family and we had no religion at all. Um, there was zero religious orientation. I didn't ever go to church as a, as a kid, never even thought we were supposed to go to church. Like some people grow up like, Oh, we'd probably be at church on Sunday. Like we were never skipping church on Sunday. Like that wasn't a thing we were skipping. It was, you know, it was somebody thinking they were skipping synagogue. Like, no, you weren't skipping synagogue. You weren't, you weren't part of one. So I never had any uh, religious teaching, any religious uh, instruction. Uh, I got into Christianity as a 16 year old um, and didn't know that Christmas and Easter were related to each other or really were religious holidays at all. Didn't know anything about them. Um, so hey, I'm curious, like, so we're, 
are your were both of your parents uh, like if you go back in their genealogy, mm-hmm. were they was there any faith based stuff there, or was it like generations of atheists or just agnostic or what? Um, my dad grew up in a family that went to an Episcopal church in Iowa. His my dad was born in 1925. His parents divorced and he one of those people that like joined the circus and then the military probably before he was old enough to, to do so kind of run away mm-hmm. kind of thing. <clears throat> so somebody gets divorced in Iowa, you know, in the 1930s, uh, they were excommunicated from the church. Okay. Um, a lot of people nowadays, you know, now would think about the Episcopal church as kind of being maybe progressive. It mm-hmm. hasn't always been, um, mm-hmm. totally wasn't in Iowa back then. So my dad had a real sour view of religion because of that the little pieces of that story came out. My mom was raised in a pretty broken up family and had sort of a Baptist tent revival experience with Christianity, but no real structure to it. We, we often joke, I often joke because I heard a guy say uh, at a meeting um, with church planters, he said, nowhere in America do we know of a church planting movement that is targeting people who do their laundry in public laundromats or public mm. spaces. And so mm. he looked at the world through the lens of public people that do their laundry in private space versus those that do like in apartment complexes or at laundromats. He's mm-hmm. like, that's a group of people. Nobody ever thinks about like, nobody wants to start a church for <laughs> people that like have to pay for their laundry. Um, and that was us. Like we were lower middle middle class, lower middle mm-hmm. class, but uh, we, we grew up poor. I didn't know this. Uh, my parents did the best that they could. I'll just fast forward and say when I was third, when my dad died, I was 31 or 32, 32. Um, I learned that my dad and his brother and their uncle were in prison before I was born. And so the mm-hmm. reason my parents ended up in Minnesota was that my mom and her sister-in-law moved to Minneapolis to be near my dad and his brother when they were in federal prison. So I didn't know any of this, but I grew up with all the implications of a parent that was a felon. And that comes with a lot of things. You can't buy a house. Jobs are hard to get. There's a lot of ways that we continue to punish uh, felons still till this day um, in this country in in ways that that are really unfair. So anyway, I grew up in that kind of a setting. And so like religion was just not it, but we grew up in this funky little apartment complex that my parents managed Mm -hmm. and my mom was a real soft hearted person and did a lot to make sure that people stayed in the apartments, even though they shouldn't, when she died, a bunch of people came to her funeral. And one guy was a, a, now a, a professor at the university of Minnesota medical center. He said, when I came as an immigrant and going to medical school here, your mom, let me live in the apartments for nine months without paying rent. And then let me pay it off over the next four years. <laughs> never wow. told the owner. And the owner of the apartment complex was standing right next to me. And he goes, Oh, she did stuff like that all the time. It used to drive me crazy. But she created this context. It was called Village Terrace. So we all lived in the village, we call it. And it was four buildings, you know, like 50 units and with a swimming pool in the middle. And there was like this thing in the 70s when we're growing up in this apartment complex. Um, And there were all kinds of people, you know, there were drag queens and there were a bunch of gay people there. And um, 
uh, uh, felons uh, that, that would live there. So we lived with this like real mashup of, of people around and it wasn't very, it wasn't like a religious, it wasn't your typical kind of like suburban circumstance yeah. and situation, you know, it was like transitional people and uh, people that were finding yeah. their way, making their way and, and all, all the rest of it. So really, I mean, it's framed the context of what I've done with my life and, and who yeah. I, how I care and who I care about. You bet. You bet. So at 16, you, what happened? You went to some kind of church group or something or got invited? Yeah, or- so one of the people who lived in the apartments with, with me was Steve and he lived there with his dad and they were a tough situation kind of playing place. And his dad had trouble caring for him and was has many of his own really deep issues. And so Steve was sent away to a foster home. Like there was child protection got involved and Steve had to go live in a foster home for a couple of years. It's like a late teen, early teenager moved back into the apartments when he was 15, 16. And we rekindled our friendship that we'd had before he left. And when he moved to that foster home, he became a Christian in this foster home. So he came back as this like zealous, newly converted Christian that we just tormented. <laughs> we were a bunch of other people, you know, kids our age that live there. And we, you know, he was a little on fire and, and we were, we were tormenting him. And, uh, we just did stuff together though. Like, you know, we were, we were best friends. And so he said one night, let's go to downtown to Minneapolis and go to see this play called the passion play. And I didn't know anything about it. Didn't know what it was. I'm not even sure he totally knew what it was, but it was one of these Easter time plays about the life of Jesus. Right. And so if you know what a passion play is, it kind of takes just the last life. So I, I go into this thing knowing nothing about Jesus at all. Never heard a passage. Didn't know what John three sixteen was. I recognized it from like, football games, you know, on the, in the goalpost, uh, but didn't know what they were and see the story of Jesus as on the side of the downtrodden, on the side of the betrayed, on the side of the, 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 the victim, uh, turning his ire against the people in power who were using their power to suppress the, 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 the weak and the poor. And then he ends up being executed and killed. I have no idea there's a resurrection coming. I don't know any of this stuff, you know, and, uh, and, but, you know, it's this down and in God story, right? And that God is on the side of all of these people. Mm-hmm. And that was a story we, we were chatting a little earlier and before about Billy Jack. But so I, 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 in one of the books I wrote called The Christianity Worth Believing, I contrast this Billy Jack story in my head from this character from a movie with this Jesus story that I was seeing um of kind of not turning to violence as a response to violence. Like as a 16 year old, knowing nothing about the Christian story, I'm not infusing it with theological mumbo jumbo of the atonement or any of this like stuff that people do with Christianity. I'm just like, this is a really human story that I recognize. I know what it's like to be harmed and to be hurt and abused. And I, I get this and I know these people and yes, God is on the side of these people. Like that's, that's the story, right? Yeah. So Fred, I'm not kidding you. They do an altar call. We go to the, I go down because, you know, I'm like, yeah, I want in on this. Like what, what's all that? What's up with all this? You know? So I go down, we end up in the back of the stage and there's all these tables or circles set up with chairs and circles. I sit in one of them. They hand out these little booklets. I think it was steps to peace with God or four spiritual laws or one of these, if you know what they are. The guy's going through it. And I'm just like, what, now what are we doing back here? You know, I don't know what's up. And we get to this page that has that, that bridge illustration, you know, the Canyon 
The, yeah. uh, so like there's a human sketch work, you know, of a human being on one side and then God on the other side. Yeah. And there's a Canyon there. Right. And honest to be, I, I look at this thing and I'm thinking to myself, what is this? Mm-hmm. Did you people see the story that they just did out on the stage out there? Because that story on the stage was not that there's a chasm between God and humanity. It was a story that God was on the side of humanity. Then you go backstage and they're pitching another story to you. Uh, <laughs> were you really thinking that at 16? Totally. I, I, oh, I, wow. I, I brought it up with my friend, Steve, on the way home. I started bringing oh, it up the God. next day. I met with these discipleship people from Campus Crusade for Christ who became some really good friends. And, and then they wrote out a whole thing on the back of a Burger King menu and with the same kind of mumbo jumbo and a train with fact, faith and feelings and all this stuff. on. And I'm like, yeah. none of this is like that story on the stage. I got it. I understood it. That's what I said yes to. Now yeah. you people are trying to tell me there's another story. And honestly, from that day, yeah. it feels like that has just never ended. Like what on earth? And so, you know, I wrote this yeah. book called Outdoing Jesus. And it's kind of that continuation of that story. I'm like, look, you can do what you want with the Bible. And there's lots of troubling things in the Bible and all that, but you just don't get to tell this other story if you want to use the Bible text for it. And people do it all the time. And it's driven me totally bonkers. And, um, you know, I've had to reconstruct or construct and re-understand all the things that, you know, have gone on like, well, why was Jesus crucified? And what does that have to do with anything? You know, Mm -hmm. but you read a book like, you know, the cross and the lynching tree and you're like, okay, yeah. (laughs) And now I see it. Now I see what an execution is. It wasn't, it wasn't trying to move the, the scales in some heavenly courtroom. It was um, trying to move the scales on some human courtroom. Mm. What's going on? Is it a story of separation or is it a story of solidarity? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which is it? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm a both and kind of guy. So, you know, my wife's like, yeah. oh, it's both. It's both and. I'm like, okay. Yeah. yeah but that's fascinating. The 16 year old that you picked up on that. That's really interesting. Huh. Well, and it's, and it's framed up the way I've thought about a lot of things, the work I do now, all of a sudden, mm. I'm like, you don't have to tell people how it is. If you, it, when you're explaining philosophy and theology and all the rest of this, what you're having to do is to explain something to people that they're not otherwise going to understand. Mm. There's a view of education that is helping people to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hands to touch, right? And know what's mm. up. And then there's a view of education, which is you're an empty vessel that doesn't know. And I need to fill you with things mm. so that you will know, yeah. These two, you know, self-learning versus external input. Yeah. And uh, church is one of the places where that stuff just goes on all the time, gets drilled into you. Don't trust what you think. Let us mm. tell you better about how this ought to go. I've been yeah. rubbing against that since I went and sat in that little circle yeah. back in the church. And the uh, guys who discipled me, Ben and uh, Bill and Kevin, would, you know, they're now, you know, I'm old and they're even older than I am. And they're like, God, you are such a pain in the ass as a teenager. <laughs> like you were just constantly questioning all this stuff. You know, I'm like, yeah. And I wasn't questioning it because I doubted. I was questioning it because what you all are saying and what I'm reading in the story, like it doesn't make sense. Like these, and, and I have a master's degree in theology. I get it. Like, yeah, no, no I problem with theology. Theology is a fun project. But it doesn't explain better than story that you can sort of yeah. find, read and find your way into and find these epic biblical tales of truth that yeah. are really different than theological uh, expositions. 
Yeah. So did you? That's a, that's a long introduction to uh, what, what oh, I'm up to now and how I got into yeah, this. I'm, I'm one of the rabbit trail, but yeah, Matthew Fox, I think that's the right author who wrote Original Blessing. Yeah. A Catholic, uh, spiritual, mystic kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, children, I think intuitively, if they have a God consciousness, feel like God loves them and is connected to them, right? Right. <laughs> you know? Like you gotta have to train that kid to teach him that, like, oh no, you're all screwed up, and God doesn't like you at all. And but you know, <laughs> yeah, no, you have to, you you've got you have to, you have to inject shame yeah. into the story. Yes, don't you think? I I do think that, and I think that <laughs> our, I mean, we can, we could do a whole Bible thing. I think that's yeah. part of what's going on, even in the Book of Genesis, and with the creation narrative uh, tales, that what they're doing is they're trying to introduce how an immature view of humanity leads people to shame and all. And you're supposed to leave all that behind as you (laughs) sort of mature, not, not that things were great and then fell off the cliff. And now we have to get back to another time. It's a sending narrative. Genesis is Mm -hmm. Um, you're sent from the garden out into the world and you're not supposed to return. So that's where the characters of, you know, with the angels and the swords of fire are there because they're like, you don't get to go back. You like, there's no going back. And then someone retells the whole story with, you know, Eden, you know, reborn and, and here we go. But there's something in us that also like there's this dueling thing in our humanity that wants this truth that we know, but then we really love it when someone tells us a myth that's not true, you know, and, and some people are, you know, they use myth as like the Bible's full of myth. I'm going to tell you the hard truth. I'm like, no, you guys are just making up a bunch of stories here about God and humanity and all this, all this stuff. Well, myth can resonate so deeply in the Mm -hmm. spirit. Like, I kind of like to say that, you know, deep truth echoes everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, And you find the rhythm and the rhyme of that truth in in your life. And that's, that's what you're looking for. Like, that's the thing you're trying to, that you're trying to match. You know, we, our work at Solomon's Porch, we used to talk about finding and living in the rhythm of God. Like, you know, is it that that's what we're up to as human beings, you know, Mm -hmm. and you don't, you don't need an upgrade and you don't need an adapter. Yeah. There's a lot of spiritual Christian spirituality and a lot of theology is designed as the adapter to help connect two things together. You know, it's like you got an iPhone cord and you got an Android phone and you can't hook them together and you're trying to figure out how, and someone then comes up with some snappy little adapter to make that thing fit. You know, you shouldn't need all that stuff. You know, there's a, there's a way of humanity. And, and certainly if you're in the Jesus story, as I, as I like to f- find myself, you totally don't need an adapter in there. I mean, Jesus is like, you've heard it said, but that stuff, I tell you, there's a better way to go than, than that. And Jesus loved to flip that stuff around and, you know. Definitely a radical, uh, revolutionary Torah teacher, not a fundamental conservative Torah teacher. <laughs> totally. Like, like when he looks and says, you know, the Torah is called the Torah. We get the word torch from it is the light. In fact, the, the Torah is the light of the world. And then Jesus looks at this group of people on a hillside and says, and you know what else? You're the light of the world. Which to a Jew is saying that Torah <laughs> and humans are at the same level of value, like the highest, the closest thing to God. And nowadays people are like, 
well, you as a person, you shouldn't tell me anything. Only the scripture should, you know, you're like, but aren't I the light of the world? Isn't <laughs> like, we just take all that Jesus stuff and just pat it all down give it very little meaning at all. And, and then ask ourselves, you know, how come yeah. this doesn't feel very interesting to me anymore? And that's, that's really the problem. You know, a lot of people don't, they didn't stop believing Christianity. They just stopped finding it interesting. Hmm. So let's pause it at the, the cause I want to circle back to the, uh, the outdoing Jesus um, and some, some of this theology, sure. but I want to, I want to go back up a little bit, get a little bit more of your, your story, your history. Um, so from a teenager who was, you know, comes to Jesus, but precocious and full of questions and all that kind of stuff, um, hard to disciple. Uh, but you, through all of that, you, uh, you felt a call to pastor evidently. Right. And you, you got into, how did you get into pastoring? And then let's, let's jump a little, give a little bit of framework for the emergent church movement sure. that you. Mm-hmm. With yeah. Bring they, it, bring yeah it's all, it's all tied together. Uh, so like that experience I had when I'm sitting in that theater watching this play and I'm like, you people all know this already. You know, later I realized that they saw a story and then had a, had a retold to them that made it less compelling. But at the time, I thought, "Hey, this is this is really good news. Why don't I know this already?" Right? And then I start finding out um, about all these other people that are Christian. Like I go to my school and I meet these other Christians and I meet these other people. And I remember talking to my friend Anne, and I'm like, "Anne, like you, you're, I, you know, she's." goes to church and stuff. And like, I knew people went to church. I just didn't know it was a thing I was supposed to do. And, and I'm like, how come you never talked to me about this? And she said, well, I just didn't think you were somebody that was kind of interested. Like I've known you since kindergarten and I don't know, maybe I wasn't, but like, seriously. And so I had this sense that there was this group of left out, left behind and let down people. And that there's this story of God with those people. And a lot of folks just don't know that. And the way religion is and everything, it's, they're, they're getting the circle of chairs conversation, not what's going on on the scene. So I, this starts to become really important to me. Mm. I'm that kind of temperament and personality, the story itself, just all kinds of things are kind of mixing together. So I become sort of an evangelist, like my friend Steve was, you know, at the, at the time I got suspended from high school for trying to hand out Christian literature and told that that was against school rules, which caused me to then file a federal lawsuit against my school. And so like, I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm an advocate and I'm doing stuff. And <laughs> I played, I, I, I was a, uh, I was a basketball player and went to a, uh, I was a high level, high caliber basketball player. and went to a, a camp for best playing, uh, best players in Minnesota that was held at this Christian college found out there were things like Christian colleges um, and uh, ended up going to one of those colleges uh, called Bethel college to play basketball and just learning about, I was a Christian for, you know, like a, it was my junior year that I got into all this stuff. So it kind of through my senior year and then went to college. NAI school. It was an NCAA school. Yeah. Oh, NCAA division two, division three. Mm-hmm. Okay. In, okay. in Minnesota, there's this really high level of division three basketball in, in Minnesota mm. plays, plays a really, really great level. My dad was a college basketball player in Kansas and then not, not a yeah. KU, but at a small college. But yeah. then, so I grew up loving basketball. And then yeah. Nephew that ended up being all American in AI at uh, mid American Nazarene, you know? He, okay. Yeah. That's good school. Yeah. That's good basketball school. They, you know, led the league and rebound scoring. Anyway. 
So, yeah. So, yeah. So that was, I mean, I was in that world. So I was like interested in Christianity, interested in basketball, went, mm-hmm. went to this college, didn't know anything about it. Didn't, I had terrible grades. Um, you know, I had to get in an academic uh, probation to go to college and cause I just didn't, I didn't read books at home. We just didn't do stuff like that. And, you know, it was fine. Um, so I went to college and kind of made my way and found out that if you were a member of a church in that school's denomination, you got some amount of money, 350 or $500 a year as a scholarship. So was I was it, looking like um, down the list of all the scholarships available. And that was one of them. What was the denomination? It's called the Baptist General Conference, which is like the Evangelical Free Church yeah. conference. So right. it's like these not 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 Southern Baptist, not conservative Baptist, but Swedish, Swedish Baptist. You go to so I looked at Baptist General Conference in the phone book, found a church by my house. It turned out to be this church near a golf course that I played golf at when I was a kid. So I knew the general area. Drove there as a sophomore in college and went to a church service, filled out a card and said, I need to become a member because I needed that scholarship. And uh, met with the staff and it was a, it was a, then it was a big church. It ultimately became a much, much bigger church called Wooddale church and started working in the, on the, in the youth ministry there as a volunteer. And, you know, I'm the kind of guy, you know, when you're a college basketball player at a Christian college nearby in the denomination and you come in, you want to work with high school kids and you're two years out of high school, it's a pretty good scene for a youth leader. Uh, and then became the youth pastor there and stayed there for 12 years and, and worked, oh, wow. in, worked in this big mega church. And yeah. Uh, but even there, you know, I mean, like it was a very open and free kind of space, like for people who think that evangelicalism is what it is now that it's taken over by the Jerry Falwells and Jerry Falwell juniors of the world and the Trumpists and the charismatic Pentecostal wackadoodles and all that stuff. Like it wasn't it wasn't always like that. There was a period in the 1980s when evangelicals were not only culture warriors and were not. Um, and I didn't know how conservative it was on some issues. Nobody sort of messed with me. Like I grew up in this space, you know, with the kinds of people I was describing in the apartment right. complex and, you know, you get a lot of pass when you're a new convert and, uh, yeah. and sort of good at what you do. Um, so anyway, it was a great experience, had a great time working at that church. And so yeah, I, 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 I want to maybe hit that point just my again, because, um, I just had interviewed Frank Schaefer Jr. a little while ago, and he's careful to point out that, that the instincts of his dad yeah, uh, and loving hanging out with the hippies and loving, you know, and they, they accepted the gays, they accepted the dope, they accepted everybody and loved people through, you know, Jesus and, and Labrie, which yeah. was for those who missed my interview with Frank, you should go back and listen to that. But but then what it turned into, Frank says, probably his dad w- wasn't nearly as excited about yeah. where it went, right? After it kind of got out of his control. And like, you know, like even in the in the beginning days of the vineyard, the hippie thing, people coming to Jesus, I just, I wanted to reach the people outside the church with a grace, yeah. with a radical yeah. grace based mm-hmm. message. And I always welcome Democrats and Republicans. And yeah, I think the, I think the polling data now shows that evangelical in American minds today at the end of 2022, beginning of 2023 is not what I signed on with yeah. in the late seventies as what an evangelical meant to me. Now it actually means Trump follower. Yeah. And American like that's what it's, you know, because you've got all of these people who actually probably didn't go to church, 
but now they love Trump and now they call themselves evangelicals. Yeah. You know, then, you know if, you, if you take a 20 year period from say September 11th till now, so some of us can think about 20 years and it doesn't feel as long, you know, you're like the attacks on the U S on the United States on September 11th yeah. was 21 years ago. Right? right. So if you take a 20 year period of time from 19, 19- 75 to 1995, which is a long time, but you know, it's get your arms around it. The fundamentalist takeover of evangelicalism, the fundamentalist takeover of the Baptist, the Southern Baptist was, I don't know if you've done your history on all that, but it was, I I was one dude. I was sitting at the table with, with the conservatives Okay. Right. Yeah. Not, I was too young. I was too young, but I, I, I was going to the school with the, I went to Baylor. Okay. The, yeah. There you go. Then, then you know what's going on at Southwest yeah. and it did. Yeah. yeah. I went to Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. Yeah. After I graduated from Baylor. But Baylor named the names of the people who did it. Like this stuff didn't just happen. People did right. it. The crime right. scene no, has DNA all over it. Right. Right. I had super liberal professors at Baylor. Yeah. Classic. Yeah liberal. And then my professors at Southwestern in the eighties were very moderate. None of them were in there, you know, and then, and then, and I watched, I was going to Baylor and Southwestern and knew the people who were leading the conservative takeover. Yeah. So yeah. And and that conservative takeover is clear there. It happened in charismatic Pentecostal movements, including the vineyard and the, and the Calvary church movement. And it happened in the more non-denominational evangelical spaces and a whole lot of really good people. Some of them are my friends, just stepped away and let the conservatives have it. And I've chosen not to do that. And as best I can, just one guy, uh, I feel like that episode on Gilligan's Island, you know, where they, they run into the, uh, the, 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 World War, you know, two guy that didn't know the war was over, you know, that one where they, they make the little story about the guys found on the island and and like just holding out, just trying to be like, maybe there's a possibility that the conservatives and fundamentalists won't take over all of Christianity and burn it to the ground. And um, so now, now I claim myself to be a progressive evangelical, like, but back in the 80s, I would have just been an evangelical. You know, like these are people that wouldn't let C.S. Lewis in. They probably wouldn't let John Stott in. Guys who I think are far too conservative. But anyway, even guys like that couldn't couldn't make it into this in, no. into this world. Um, yeah. So that whole thing, just I watched it happen. I saw it happen. It drove me crazy watching it happen and watching good people go quiet. And then you know, you just fast forward up to the the 2016. You're like, well, yeah, of course, these people gave up the fight long ago. And turned it over to, you know, a, a, a Trumpist movement. So I heard somebody say, I think it's somebody who was from that world and has kind of resisted it. But he said, you know, we used to worry that people wouldn't believe the story of Jesus we were telling them. Now people don't think we believe the story of Jesus that we're telling them. <laughs> and that's a great flip. That's a doozy. I like that one. I want you to share a little bit about you went from Wooddale youth pastor there for 12 years. But and uh, the emergent church movement. Yeah. Yeah. What was what was that about for just just share it with people who might not know. And and by, I have a little joke that I told you on the, when we had a Zoom meeting together about um, I tried to when you first started that, that that leadership next thing, I tried to get in on it. Yeah, You're too old. 
And I was too old. I was 40. <laughs> I think my birthday was two years too old. Like I was born in 61. Yeah. And, uh, so my yeah, joke so- was, man, Doug, if you hadn't uh, turned me away, I, you might have saved me. I don't know. Save my soul. Yeah. Because it sounded interesting to me when I was 40 pastoring Vineyard Church in Kansas City, Missouri, you know. Well, my apologies. That was a mistake. <laughs> sorry about that. And sorry the way things have gone for you. All right. So so here's here's what here's what's up. Um, a lot of us were youth pastors and I was a youth pastor and we were bringing together um, people from the large churches. Uh, when you work in a big church where there's like multiple staff, 10 or 20 or 30 people, and you have hundreds of kids in your youth ministry and all this stuff, it's just a different setting than it is for people that are in other kinds of churches. So there was networks of people from big churches. And I worked ultimately where I went to work for a group that uh, organized these kinds of big churches called Leadership Network. But I first knew about that group because there was network with, I helped form a network of youth pastors from big churches. So we were doing this kind of work at that time. And we're talking like in the 19, early 1990s, maybe late 1980s, there was a lot of conversation about generationalism, which I thought was nonsense then and more convinced that generationalism is a nonsense, is nonsense now. But there was a lot of talk about Gen X. What does it mean for Gen X people? And what's this next generation after the baby boomers? What's it going to look like? And, you know, kids that grew up with Latchkey and saw the shuttle blow up and, you know, all the, the David Letterman instead of Johnny Carson, all the nonsense of generationalism, right? So, but there was a lot of focus on this. And some of us were saying, look, yeah, there's generation and I'm part of the Gen X generation. Fred, you're really close to it. You can see the Gen X generation from where you are, you know. But we also were saying, look, there's something more going on. There's a larger shift in the world. There's a larger cultural shift. There's a larger philosophical shift that goes by a lot of names, including postmodernism. So we're moving from a period of modernity into a period of postmodernity. And Gen X is one of those. But the generationalism is like the waves coming up on the on the on the beach. But cultural shifts are like the undertow that's going back out in the ocean. It's actually what's causing the waves. Right. And that greater power and that greater pull by the moon, that kind of stuff. That's what we really want to talk about. So a lot of us were super interested in both generationalism as it helped us to understand postmodern culture. And is there a larger shift in society that's moving us beyond modernism and colonialism and a whole lot of other isms that we think are a problem, maybe even capitalism, right? So this is the kind of stuff we were all talking about as, as youth pastors. We weren't just doing fun games. We were talking about theology. Like, how do you live in a postmodern age when so much of your theology was created in a pre and modern age period of time? Right. So this kind of stuff. And what does a postmodern theology look like? And what would postmodern churches look like and all this? So we're doing that kind of work. That then led to a whole series of meetings around what does it mean to reach Gen X people? And every generation is interesting to marketers and to church people because it's, you know, it's the young generation. So give it whatever letter you want. Someone's going to be interested in 19 to 25 year olds. Right? So we were talking about that, that group of people. That ultimately led to forming this new outreach effort to find the best leaders in America reaching Gen X culture and younger. So that's what I was hired to do is travel the country, create context, create a system and a structure with the funding of this nonprofit or this private foundation that could 
find the next great group of leaders. So, you know, yeah. find, you know, guys like Rob Bell and Erwin McManus and Tim Keller and Pam Fikencher and Daniel Schroyer, like men and women of doing all kinds of interesting stuff all over the country and started creating a network of those people. And so I did that for a whole period of time between being at Wooddale and starting the church that ultimately was a pastor of called Solomon's Porch. And so I was creating that network and finding those people and creating conferences. And ultimately that we we found a name and a, a context for that, that we called the emerging church or emergent village. And we used emergent to reference emergent principles and emergent properties and forestry and emergent growth and all this kind of, you know, sciencey philosophical stuff about emerging um, culture that's that's not driven from one center point, but it's going to happen in a variety of places simultaneously. So anyway, that's what we were doing. And then that produced a whole network of emerging church stuff, of which one of the premier conferences that we first launched to kind of introduce this stuff to the country at large was a conference where we said, if you were born after born before 1965, you could come to this conference, but you had to come as the guest of someone born after 1965. So older generation needed to be the guest and live like the guest and function like the guest. This is our big you know, thing is when you're 30 year old, like you 40 and 50 year olds can come, but you got to come with a 22 year old. That's going to be your, they're, they're the host. They're the real invitee and you're right. the guest. So live like it and learn like it and all the, all the rest of that stuff. So yeah. you know, it's a marketing, marketing pitch. And we had to pick a year and I met you, I probably would pick 1961 just to yeah. let you, but we just, <laughs> we just picked 1965 because that's what the generationalism said. Yeah. Said, said the rules were. Well, so what what has bring us up to like what happened with that movement and then kind of bring us up to where you're at now. And yeah. but, but I want to have a little bit of time to talk about outdoing Jesus, a little okay. a couple of theology points there. Sure. And then I want to I, I want to have time to talk some about Bo Common Good. Yeah, for I, I know anywhere between 10 and 20 years, this emerging church thing was alive and well, had a lot of energy, had a lot of interest to it. Um, people from many different, you know, I came from an evangelical background, people from lots of different denominations were interested in it. They were making their own little hybrid versions, like what is what does emerging culture look like for Methodists? So they started a thing called Methemergent and Presbymergent for Presbyterians and Lutheranergent. And like there were just what does it mean to be in a context and then emerge to the next thing? Right. So that's the thing that they were that we were doing and we're up to. And um yeah, it's you know, the impact of it is still around. It was never a, it, it was, it was an approach to the world, not a product that we were trying to sell. <laughs> a lot of people still don't understand that. Like, well, what's the theology of the emerging movement, emerging church? We're like, well, it depends on what your context is. What are you emerging from? And like, where are you, you know, like, you know, if you're an emerging charismatic, it's really different than if you're an emerging Calvinist, like you're, you're, you're starting from different places and the other people's thing is probably more refreshing than your own thing. And you might be swapping recipes and, you know, it was, a, it was an approach to the world that began with openness and began with understanding conversation and friendship. So we had this thing called, you know, being a friend of emerging. And then when, so Facebook comes along in 2006 or whatever, and we're doing this stuff in 2001 and two and three, and, you know, we were right in that vibe, right? Like, 
organize people under the banner of friendship and conversation. So when Facebook launches and they're called friends and you're going to then exchange things in a social posts, we're like, yeah, that's the stuff we think we should be doing too. Like it, it kind of made sense. It was all built out of that same Melu of thinking and thought. And could you have, um, is, is the approach to spirituality the thing you're really trying to curate as opposed to the spiritual artifacts or the spiritual answers or the spiritual, even the spiritual questions. Like it's, it's certainly not about answers. It's probably not even about questions. It's probably about an approach or a way of being. Yeah. 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 So, and then that, and in, in, in terms of a movement has kind of just diversified and uh, what year did wild goose festival start? Cause I went to that, last year for the first time, or I went to that in July this year. I think it's 10 years ago that that Wild Goose Festival started. Is that right? Didn't they just have the 10th anniversary? I've been to all of them except last year. So um, I think it was 10 years ago. That was the first one I went to. So it was, it was interesting. Um, I I enjoyed it, but uh, that, that was something that kind of came out of that as an ongoing. Yeah, there were lots of things that came out of it. Like, <laughs> you know, there were many relationships and people and and events and publishers and churches, like lots of stuff came out of that, uh, out of that approach. Yeah. It's totally in that same, same approach. Yeah. Same swath. Yeah. Right. So your book out, outdoing Jesus um, is, is really a kind of a commentary on the gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was when I was reading, I was thinking, you know, if you think about sort of the evangelical take on the Gospel of John, probably one of the most often quoted passages from John's Gospel is John 14, 6. Mm-hmm. Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Mm-hmm. And then that gets interpreted through a very exclusive lens. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus is the I am statements. He's saying he's deity, he's God in the flesh. Um, yeah. And then like, if you don't believe in me, basically you're going to hell. Yeah. Um, and so that, and you might even throw a good C.S. Lewis argument in there, Lord, liar, lunatic to really bring it home. Right. And um, yeah. And I, so uh, your book kind of, and you have a previous book called Flipped, but your Outdoing Jesus book kind of flips that yeah. on its head a little bit, right? Yeah. I mean, it tries to take the passages more uh, on face value. And you're, you're also trying to integrate it into um, the Exodus story, the I Am Exodus story. Yeah. And out uh, the seven miraculous signs tie into the seven days of creation and how, how the creation story pops up in. Yeah. That's pretty clever, isn't it? Wow, you saw that you're like, hey, there's and, a, there's and, a turn phrase. Yeah. And how the, I am really is just Jesus echoing people back to the Exodus story. Yeah. More so than some personal identity thing. And yeah, so. Yeah, so if, if, I, if I could have my way, rather than people picking from John, like the phrase, either for God so loved the world that he was one and only begotten son, or um, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's another great phrase in John, which a lot of people know, which is, those who believe in me will do the works that I'm doing and do even greater works than these. And that's right. the frame of this book. 
Yeah. Uh, that's where the term, term greater than comes from because Jesus says they'll do greater works than these. Uh, yeah. And the works he's describing specifically are the seven miraculous signs in the Gospel of John. And there's only seven in John. They're structured in a certain way. The seven that are in John are not in the other gospels, or if they sound like ones from the other gospels, they have such a major difference in them that they are fundamentally a different story. Mm-hmm. So you have seven miraculous signs that don't show up in the other gospels that mirror and match the seven days of creation. Because what gospel of John is trying to propose is that Jesus is the son of man and the new Adam who's calling for a new way of humanity. And what will that humanity look like? And these seven miraculous signs show us what that new humanity would look like. So I take modern and um, science and cultural developments and say, this is how that miraculous sign changing water to wine or healing a blind person or, um, you know, healing a boy that was going to die of a fever, how people are doing and outdoing those things now. And that the greater than promise that Jesus talked about is mm-hmm. constantly being fulfilled because Jesus is the great starting line, not the great finish line. That Jesus mm-hmm. is not the miraculous exception, but the magnificent rule for how humanity is supposed to live and supposed to be. So it's yeah. totally a different way to read the Gospel of John. I think it's more faithful to the Gospel of John than what people yeah. do when they hunt and pick and try to figure out these miraculous signs and, and all the rest of it. And I mean, I could tell you stories about how I got turned on to this idea and, and all the rest of it, but that's that's the argument of the book. It's It's fundamentally interested in Jesus as the son of man which is the phrase he gives to himself in the gospel of John. So in other words, he's, Mm -hmm. you know, Adamson. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's the new Adam. And we just immediately replace everything in the gospel of John by turning him into the son of God instead of the son of man. And there's no meaning to son of God, if not the son of man. But for most people, they want to see Jesus as an exception, who's a child of God and not human like the rest of us. Maybe theologically, they'd have to sign off fully God, fully man, but they don't mean it at all. They really mean that he did all that stuff because he had magic power or superhero power or something else. So what's funny is, you know, I was in the vineyard movement. We weren't weren't cessationists. And John Wimber, who was very influential in the Wimber movement, he this was one of his favorite verses. But he sprung board off of it saying, well, all of us Christians, the authority in the name of Jesus can do signs and wonders like Jesus did. You know, so we're praying the sick and we're doing so we're trying to duplicate the miraculous things uh as followers of jesus with his authority and power and all that kind of stuff and um you know and so you know i've prayed for sick people my whole life yeah. uh can't even tell you how many and uh i always i always tease you know here i was a vineyard pastor and my church ended up being one of the larger vineyards in the world and I always say, I don't have the gift of healing. You better go somebody else because I mean, I'll pray for you. But um, it didn't work. <laughs> well, most of the people over at Mount Sinai Hospital, they probably could help with that. <laughs> like, I think they end up feeling loved by me because I prayed for them, you know, and I prayed for them in a gracious way. But but occasionally something crazy good would happen. And it seemed like it was a result of the prayer. But I love the way you expanded this into. Well, I love two things about your book. One, that you, that the way you're interpreting John, which I, I thought you did great historical work on it too, by the way. So uh, good job. And, uh, but one, it becomes a way more inclusive story for yes. all of humanity 
to participate in this new humanity that Jesus through the new creation is trying to bring about. And then you give access point, it, you know, you don't, you don't have to go work out a supernatural, you don't have to go do a supernatural miracle, but you can go feed somebody. You can go, you know, scientists can help people get a prosthetic and help people walk and people can, you know, clean water. And I mean, you, yeah. you gave, you gave hundreds of examples of how we can take the deep meaning of these texts and move them into humanity, loving, embracing each other versus hating and dividing into tribalism and trying to kill each other. You know, like it's a beautiful new humanity that you, and you show, you showed that as Jesus showing a pathway forward that works even in the 21st century. Yeah. My well, thanks. Thoughts. Thanks. That's, that's what I've, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, it's a, it was a project for me trying to, in my book flipped and in greater than they're, they're really two, they, they go together. They're a little, they're a little pair. And, uh, and, and so is Christianity worth believing. There's a little trifecta of books, these three, because in Christianity worth believing, when I finished writing that, I was like, I think I've done a, a sufficient and helpful job of a non-exclusivist Christianity that for the left out, the left behind, the let down in us all. But I really still had a problem in my own theology that I felt like I hadn't really dealt with, but what does Jesus have to do with any of this? Right. Which if you're going to be Christian and I want to be Christian and I want to be Christian in a Jesus-y way, you kind of got to figure out what Jesus's role in all this is, right? Like that's a, that's a, that's a major thing. So in flipped, I kind of moved that direction. And then in, greater than is sort of the finishing of the Jesus. I'm really like everybody in their own stories. You know, I am trying to answer the 35 years of questions that came out of me sitting in the front of that balcony of that church, watching that play on the, on the stage, <laughs> what happened there? And yeah. I've been trying to keep, I, I want to keep in that story to see does, is that, does that story actually make sense as a pathway for humanity to live? Cause I'm just not religious enough to actually think I need a cosplay circumstance in my life where I'm going to go pretend to be somebody else. You know, I, I'm not a sports fan. I don't need to get dressed up on Sundays and cheer for my football team. And I don't do live action role play and I don't need to go to cosplay and I don't need to go to church and pretend there's another kingdom of God somewhere that we're going to talk about while we're here. That has nothing to do with what's outside the windows. So I wanted a humanity. I wanted a story of my religion that compelled me into humanity in a way that was good for me. And ultimately I thought was good for everybody and that everyone was going to have enough and no one had to be afraid. So if you mm -hmm. don't get there, mm -hmm. what's the point of your religion? If it's not a benefit and blessing for others. So I've been trying to noodle around with this and figure it out. And uh, the gospel of John was the thing I read that those guys that were really good to me and, and discipled me into Christianity told me to read the gospel of John. I did. I remember the first time I read that phrase, those would do great. And I remember someone explaining to me that, well, it means you can do miracles like Jesus did. And I'm like, like <laughs> magic power. Like, I don't think Jesus was doing, because even at the time, I mean, I write this in the book, even at the time when I first read the miraculous signs, they're not that miraculous. I mean, all in all water to wine, you know, healing a kid of a virus, a, a guy at a pool that then, then thinking later, well, I mean, they're kind of miraculous, but not really by the standards of what goes on at any research university hospital. Like they're just not that impressive. So what are these miracles doing here? You know, like he never flew. 
He didn't invent the zipper 2000 years ahead of time, which he should have because the zipper is an amazing, miraculous thing. Like, so clearly these stories are not superhero stories. I think my little bit in there about superheroes is kind of a thing I really wanted to write or a whole book just to sit that thing in there. Right. Like if we don't get beyond Jesus as a superhero character with magic powers, then we're really going to get stuck in a Christianity that makes no sense because it just doesn't make any sense to long for a time when there was a really great magician with God magic. And now you just have a little bit of it. So he had all of it and you get one gift or something that you could maybe do one third of the time. Like this is just not, this is not a compelling story for humanity. There's a better one and it's in the gospels. And so the gospel of John is not that little story. It's not an exclusive story. It's this big, beautiful, broad way of everlasting life, you know, which doesn't mean that life, you just live forever. It means you're on a path that has no end. It's a, it's a path of human flourishing and human goodness. And, you know, I start sounding like a humanist or something when I'm reading the thing, but I'm nowhere near as humanist as Jesus is. Like there's nobody more humanist than that guy. I mean, that guy was really believed in humanity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, I think, sorry, sorry about the sermon there. Yeah. I encourage people to read it. I think it's got some, some wonderful insight and a lot of ways to, to participate in this new creation, new humanity that Jesus modeled for. So, um, I, so vote common good. Um, so let me like, so, you know, I came to Jesus, I was smoking weed at 14, 15, 16. My dad made me go to a Southern Baptist youth camp, get saved, feel two months later called to be a pastor. And, uh, I am, um, you know, registering to vote for the first time as an 18 year old Ronald Reagan's run in 1980, you know, and I'm pretty Southern Baptist saved, not doing drugs anymore. Feel called to be a pastor. I register as a Republican and basically still, I would still be a registered Republican. Right. And I kind of, you know, got into the, the Republican pro-life platform, uh, started, a you know, charismatic light evangelical church. Mm -hmm. That's, I wasn't one of the super charismatic vineyards out there, but, um, but always had, you know, I had Democrats on my board. I had Democrats on my staff. I had, I didn't try to alienate Democrats. I, I, there were some things in the democratic platform that I actually agreed with, you know, like universal healthcare. And I was always pro immigrant and, you know, a lot of, because I looked at some of the social justice things that, that, the prophets and Jesus talked about, and you know, valued some of those things, um, you know, still would have been felt like life was sacred. Um, you know, when 2000 and, you know, when nine 11 happened, I was right out of the gates two weeks in, I was talking about loving Muslims, Yeah. And, uh, you know, not trying to create an enemy out of them. And so there were, there were some good things. And then, you know, when Bush got into the Iraq war, I wasn't for that, you know, and then, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're humming along probably when Obama ran my, my congregation probably split in half. I bet mm-hmm. you we canceled each other votes out. A few thousand people voted for one guy, a few thousand people yeah. voted. Most of my younger people voted for Obama, you know, yep. and then Trump comes along. This is before I went to rehab in 2018. And I voted for John Kasich in the Republican primaries in 2016. Yeah. I was never a Trump fan. And, uh, and as I 
watch this unfold, it's like, you know, my my joke is with my with all my Republican friends is like, yeah, Trump turned me into a Democrat. But but, you know, I mean, all, so many of my friends still vote, even if they don't like Trump, they voted for Trump largely only because of the pro-life platform. Right. So you're out there started vote common good. You your instincts on starting this was to help some of our evangelical friends to like maybe who are questioning Trump. Did you start it specifically because of Trump? Yeah. yeah. Specifically because of the evangelical support of Donald Trump. That's what caused the organization. Yeah. 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 And so you started that trying to help maybe persuade some faith-based evangelical supporters that it would be okay if they actually voted for a Democrat. Yeah. For, any number of reasons, but <laughs> yeah. typically started it because of the Trump stuff, right? hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Yeah. So give us a few minutes on uh, vote common good and what you're trying to do through vote common good. And if anybody's interested, how they can sure. access. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, in some ways you could think, well, how did this guy's life pivot from that thing? You know, I wrote that book in 2018 that we were just talking about, like, how, then how'd you end up also doing this? And it feels to me very, very similar because there's this, remember, you know, I felt like there were these, there was this good news of the gospel that was being held back from people and other people weren't hearing about it. And I felt like I was one of those and wanted out. So I knew that the system and structures often of religion often make things harder on people rather than easier. Not always, but they can tend to do so. And I knew so many people like yours who are like your story that were just like, I I have an identity that some point became wedded together where my religious identity and my political identity are that I'm a Christian. So I'm a Republican. Like the joke is like they went to the Wendy's drive through and ordered the number two. It came with the fries and they said, I won't eat the fries this time. They ate the fries, uh, right? The, the, the Republican identity came along with the deal and they, they, they just they didn't know any different. And then over the last 25, 30 years, People have been told repeatedly that Democrats are godless and that Chris, that he, Republicans are holy and, you know, all this stuff. And so people end up believing this stuff. Then their eyes get opened up and they're like, OK, hang on a minute. <laughs> like, I thought we were doing this. And then you go with this guy. And now you're telling me that none of this, stuff, you know, that that thing that happened to people. But we knew that there were a lot of people who felt really alone, didn't know what to do, felt conflicted. And we wanted to put forth a. Christian evangelical voice that said, you don't have to vote for the guy. Don't let them bully you into it. Mm. Fred, you're, you're unique in the world that you were in, that you didn't put a lot of pressure on people to come down one way or the other, but there's a lot of social pressure when it comes to, to voting and religion's one of the places that delivers that social pressure. And for a lot of evangelicals, that pressure is you vote for a Republican or you're not a good Christian. And we wanted to help people realize you can have the common good as your voting criteria, mm-hmm. not Republicanism. And if you can, in good conscience, vote for Republican, vote for Republican. Great. Um, but you don't have to. And just breaking that thing open, just saying you can swap out the fries for a side salad. Oh, I can swap the fries. You know, like when you're at a place and they're like, you can make substitutions. You're like, oh, I'll, I'll have the salad instead of the fries. And sometimes on a menu, it says no substitutions. There's a lot of people whose evangelicalism t- tells them 
no substitutions. We're like, just try the salad (laughs) this time, right? Like, keep your faith. But what a lot of Democrats say to people is, hey, if you want to vote for a Democrat, give up your your evangelical identity. Mm. So we knew that you're there are. Look, I, I don't really care who someone votes for. I care about who's elected, but I'm not running around trying to make sure people vote for the right person because you know, their voting needs to make them a good person. I think we should separate our voting practice from our personal identities as best we can, or at least recognize when we can. It's what in psychological terms they call agency, right? You should have more agency. You can choose to do something or not. So. You know, a psychologist might tell somebody who says to her, they might say, well, he just made me so mad. The therapist might say, well, um, you responded in anger, but he maybe didn't make you. Mm. You have agency. You have other choices available to you. That agency is really empowering. So that's what we wanted. We're not trying to convince people to change their minds. Our joke is, look, Donald Trump is a self-cleaning oven. The guy does all the work for you. You know, he'll show you how bad he is. The question is not how bad is he? The question is, how good are you? Right. So can you separate? So that's the kind of work we're doing. And this is what as a pastor, I've realized you do as a pastor, right? You say to people like, hey, I'm not going to tell you to change your beliefs. But if you have a belief that's not serving you well, just know there's a possibility you could let go of that. You might not have to hold that belief later. Now, we also recognize for a lot of people, our beliefs are not something we choose. They happen to us. They visit Mm -hmm. us. They haunt us. So we have to help people with skills and resources and personal capacities. Mm -hmm. I I heard a definition of leadership that I really liked, actually by the guy who was the founder of the Wild Goose Festival. Uh, Gareth Higgins sent me onto this. It's quoting somebody else, but I heard it from Gareth. Uh, the, the, The quote is that the primary goal of leadership is to create the conditions by which people can become emotionally mature. The goal of leadership is to create the conditions by which people can become emotionally mature. Yeah. Uh, I like that so much, right? Uh, like everything about it. Um, well, can you create the conditions by which people could say, Hey, I can do something. I didn't, that I didn't have to, but I also know just how hard that is. And I actually truly believed and still believe that Donald Trump, is a unique threat to the well-being of this country, this planet, and everyone who lives on it. I think that he is a threat to democracy. I think he's a threat to civility. I think he's, his policies are a threat to goodness and to immigrants and to economics and to environmentalism. And I think it's really a problem. And I cannot imagine anybody else at any point in time ever being elected president that I would have said, I'm going to pivot my life and spend my time trying to move five to 10% of evangelicals in certain voting situations to not vote for somebody like who gives up their life to do that? Uh, well, I was convinced that that was uh, that I, I'm just like that level of catechism, uh, cataclysmic uh, belief and how and, and how dangerous this guy is and, and how bad it is um, to a point that it actually kind of kind of shocks me. Um, so. So anyway, we started this organization. That's what we do. We travel. We do. We do stuff. We do a lot of media. We do a lot of, you know, I'm on lots of news programs and news articles, and we'd spend a lot of time in the press and we spend a lot of time producing content really worried about christian nationalism really worried about immigration really worried about violence uh, civil violence that's supported by the death penalty and other kinds of things so anyway there's particular topics we spend a lot of energy around but we're really trying to help voters just have an, a personal identity or yeah. their religion and their 
is a choice. Just a greater level of autonomy, a greater level of agency, a greater level of choice is what we're what we're gunning for. It's interesting. My I started partnering in Kansas City years ago, you know, with the we kind of did a do, do, did you ever meet Steve Shogren? Oh, yeah, I know Steve very well. Yeah, Steve was a big he was a big player in that group that I worked for. Um, He's a really dear friend of mine since the 90s. Same oh, with Carl, with Carl Medeiros, if you know Carl. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh-huh. Anyway, they're two of my longtime vineyard friends from the 90s. Yep. Still still connected to both of them. But, you know, we we really did our social justice platform through Steve's kind of mm-hmm. God's love in practical ways, no strings attached. So I didn't really do it politically so much as I did it just servant yeah. servant wise, you know, try to serve the city. And all of its places that, you know, are broken or or need help or, you know, and so I partnered heavily with the Latino and African-American churches in Kansas City and still still some of my closest friends. And it was so interesting because like all of my African-American friends, even if they were very conservative theologically, (laughs) voted Democrat. Right. It was always, you know, like as a, you know, as a a white evangelical guy in the suburbs when I first started initially hanging out with my African-American pastor friends, I was like, well, how can you guys be, you know, and this was, mm-hmm. this was 25 years ago. How can you mm-hmm. guys be for Democrats? You know, they're not pro you know, whatever. And so, mm-hmm. so through, you know, like untold hours of discussions, you know, and then of course my European friends, yes. <laughs> even my, Vineyard European friends were like, what's wrong with you? Pro-life. You know, they never saw it the way uh, so many white evangelicals saw it in the eighties and nineties, even, you know, the European evangelicals were seeing our political totally different. That helped me to rethink everything. Even back then, 25, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, because I started listening long enough to my friends outside of America and my my African-American and Latino friends in America, you know, even though the Latino votes a little mixed that the African-American vote, not so much like 98% of black women vote for, you know, Hillary or voted for, you know, anyway. So, um, so I, so that kind of helped me. So then like seeing what you're doing in the, in the Trump era makes total sense to me. Mm -hmm. But there's there's so many of my evangelical friends who who still can't see it that way. You, you know what I mean? I mean, I know I you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's my daily reality. And it's like my guy that know, talks about religion and politics. It's a you know, what a what a party pooper. How can you be a real follower of Jesus and vote for Trump? I don't know how it's possible, but some people do it. I know real Christians who vote for Trump. (laughs) It's true. I've met them. I know them. They're sincere in their faith and they do that thing. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 And I had people in my church that were, that were Democrats for years that said that, like, we're so glad we found a church where you just find but we can vote Democrat, you know? And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. I believe you're, you know, I believe you're a follower of Jesus and, I value you. I'm glad you're here. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, what a world we live in. What a world. So, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, and look, I know a lot of pastors who think the church should just stay out of it. And I know a lot of people, a lot of Democrats I hang around with are like, religion should have nothing to do with it. But the truth of it is for most people, they're one human being who has faith 
experiences, leanings, interests, practices, and they're the same person that does these other things in their life. So you can't separate them in the person. You should separate them from the government. Jeff Sessions, as the attorney general of the United States, should not describe the insanity of the family separation policy by saying, I want to commend to you the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. That's Christian nationalism, which he did. Donald Trump should not clear up uh, a bunch of protesters out so he can go stand in front of St. John's Church and hold up a Bible. You shouldn't. That, yes, that stuff we shouldn't be doing. I think we shouldn't have chaplains opening our sessions of uh, the Senate with prayer. There's a role in it. I think we shouldn't. But an individual person, you're not going to separate, you know, you're not going to separate from a person. That person's going to be motivated. And that's where we work. We work in that space with the person, not in those other spaces. We don't really work on policy per se. We work on voters and we work to help candidates introduce themselves to voters in a way that the voter could make an exception to maybe for one time vote for uh not Republican and have yeah. a and have a choice. So so that's the kind of work we do, really designed to help people do what they already want to do. Like I said, we're not trying to change minds. We're trying to help people act in a way that would be more consistent with the change that they've already experienced. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that helped me out too was when I was at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, I, I loved history. I studied ancient Near Eastern history, but then I studied church history. And one of my favorite professors was a guy named William Estep, who was one of the top Hmm. experts in Anabaptist history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He wrote the Anabaptist story. He translated the Schleitheim Confessions. I mean, these are the people who were in the Reformation. They got killed by everybody. They were the pastors. They took Jesus seriously about loving their enemies. They didn't pick up arms. They they totally separated themselves from the state because they saw the state as corrupt. They didn't even think a Christian should serve in the state or hold arms for any purpose whatsoever. So that's why they ended up becoming like the Mennonites and the Amish and all that. They were kind of separatists, but their instincts for taking Jesus seriously when it came around state issues. And when it came around pacifism have always been my leaning ever since I studied those guys, you know, I was reading politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder when I was. Yeah, totally. And rethinking all of that stuff. And I just don't think a lot of evangelicals realize like when Christians have been in power, political power throughout the 2000 years of Christian, we've done a pretty shitty job. In fact, done most everything about the opposite of what Jesus would have done. And Christians in the minority persecuted have always looked a whole lot more like Jesus Mm -hmm. than Christians in power. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so, uh, so I have, we have this narrative where in America, where you're the hero, the villain or the victim, and you're always one of those three. It's really, really hard. It's, it's damaging to us as a society. And so people will find a way for them to be the hero every time, or at least the victim. And that's what you get in this Christian movement is some victimized Christian narrative where Christians are being persecuted in some way because they're, they have to bake cakes for weddings. They don't want to bake, they don't, don't want to attend. And whether the hero just protecting the babies, just saving the babies. What about the babies? I mean, the number of times I've heard people yell at me, what about the babies? And I'm like, well, if you really care about the babies, maybe you spend a little time at a, you know, at a, at a pro-life clinic. Do you give any money to a pro-life? You don't do anything. So don't tell me that you really care about the babies when you really do nothing other than not vote for a Democrat. Like if you think that there's a genocide going on and your response is simply, I won't vote for a Democrat. 
think you may have misunderstood the calling that you should be, that you should be a part of. Right. So there's always a hero narrative, always a, a victim narrative, and then always a villain. And so that's one of the things we're trying to overcome. We don't want to talk about Republicans only as villains. Rather, we're all sojourners. We're all human sojourners. The alternative to the villain victim hero story is that we're all sojourners trying to find our way home at night. And we're trying to get along here. We're trying to live in a way of human flourishing. And we're in this thing together. And if we could take, and that means we're going to do things that harm one another and things that which some people think are heroic and other people think are villainous, but we're not just that we're sojourners in this thing together. That's Jesus-y. That's what we do. And so some people want to vote. Some people don't want to vote. Um, mm-hmm. We don't tell people to vote or not to vote. We're just like, if you do make sure the common good is what you're voting about, <laughs> you know? Uh, and if you don't so feel did, good about it, then don't do it. You know, what's your website? You your God and your doctor. Yeah. What's your website? How to, if people are interested or want to check it out, where, where do they go? Yeah. Yeah. Vote common goods. The thing to look at, if you go to, you know, if you want to, good old fashioned website, we're.com, votecommongood.com. You Google vote common good. You'll see all the stuff, you know, the Instagrams and Twitters and all that mm-hmm. stuff. It's all, it's all under that banner vote common good. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we do a lot, man. We, uh, we, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a small, but mighty little group of, uh, of, of activists. And if this is the space where you find yourself in, you know, we run a podcast and YouTube channels and, you know, just all manner of all manner of trying to create a context for people. So they feel like there's something they could be involved in. Cool. Cool. Well, we are, we are over time, out of time. We spent uh, two hours doing this. I know, man. I mean, we didn't record all of it, but thanks. Thanks, thanks for, for your time. Yeah. And I'm, it's a pleasure to finally connect and get to know you. Uh, and I, I've, I, I've, I've known of you for so many years, but mm. uh, finally connect is, is fun. I really appreciate it. So folks, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. So everybody, thanks for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Take care. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using, and then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.